Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan or occasional observer. We hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. My guest today is one of my closest mentors and has been influential in my development as a surgeon as both an educator and a partner at Andrew Sports Medicine. I'm honored and excited to welcome Dr. Lyle Kane. Dr. Kane is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine and the surgery of the shoulder, elbow, and knee. He is the co-founding partner and member of Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center and is a co-director of the American Sports Medicine Institute Orthopedic Fellowship Program in Birmingham, Alabama. During his training under the world-renowned Dr. James Andrews Fellowship, Dr. Kane was identified by Dr. Andrews as a unique and special talent, and he was handpicked along with his co-fellow, Dr. Jeff Dugas, to carry on the highly regarded and esteemed legacy of Dr. Andrews himself. Since that time, Dr. Kane has established himself as one of the best sports medicine surgeons in the country, operating on thousands of patients, including some of the most elite athletes in all sports, including Drew Brees, Julio Jones, Mark Ingram, Eddie Jackson, Davis Love III, Deontay Wilder, C.J. Mosley, and many, many more. As a longtime physician of the University of Alabama and the five-time national championship football team, Dr. Kane has been instrumental in keeping the Crimson Tide players on the field, including the well-known Alabama quarterback, Tua Tungvaluwa. Dr. Kane's expertise extends to the research realms. He has published well over 75 peer-reviewed articles, numerous book chapters, and many presentations at world conferences uh, for orthopedic surgery, sports medicine, and others. Uh, he has been recognized uh, with numerous awards, including Best Doctor in America in 2015 and 2018, Top Doctor in Orthopedics and Sports Medicine from 2015 to 2018, Major League Baseball Super Surgeon, and he was awarded the Jack C. Houston Sports Medicine Person of the Year Award in 2016 by the Southeast Athletic Trainers Association. An avid turkey hunter, sports enthusiast, a family man, Dr. Lyle Kane. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. We've had some great conversations so far, and you know, I like to just get into it in terms of where you're from, where you grew up, and uh, you're a local guy, right? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up here in Birmingham. Uh, I was actually born in in Huntsville, North Alabama. Uh, my dad was a electrical engineer from North Alabama. Uh, went to University of Alabama, got an engineering degree and went to work for Boeing up in Huntsville during the Apollo rocket days. My dad was part of the engineering team that did the simulations for the first Apollo rocket moon launch really? in, the, in the late 60s. 
and he was there from 65 to 68 or 69. The Apollo rocket launch, the moon launch was in 68, which was when I was born. So I spent my first six to nine months in, in Huntsville right after birth. And then once the Apollo project was over, uh, he found a new job with Thompson Tractor selling uh, heavy equipment with Caterpillar uh, dealership here in Birmingham. So we moved to Birmingham and I was uh, grew up you know, from nine months until you know, through high school in Birmingham. So I was, I was a local guy. Um, you know, grew up as a big Alabama fan. I was one of those kids that, you know, wanted to play for Bear Bryant back in the heyday. Sure. Uh, during my real formative years, kind of my, you know, eight-year-old to 14-year-old time frame, we won every game we we played and, you know, won back-to-back national championships in 78 and 79 and should have won a few more and was a big fan, had a, you know, big, my room was white on two walls and crimson on two walls. <laughs> So I grew up as a fan and went to university, undergrad, and then you know, had a chance to take care of my own. So it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be great being a local guy, being able to eventually take care of the team that you always always loved and followed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, I, you know, I, I enjoy taking care of teams I didn't didn't follow, but when, you, when you're already a fan, it makes it easier yeah, in some ways. I can imagine. And um, you were an athlete yourself growing up here too, correct? Played. Yeah, yeah I, played, I played everything as a kid, you know, grew up playing – football, baseball, basketball, kind of the big three. Gave up basketball when I didn't make the team in seventh grade in junior high. I had heard about that. What's and the story then, uh, behind that one? <laughs> so the the coach that uh, didn't pick me, you know, I was not a very good basketball player, but I thought I was good enough to make the team and um, didn't make it. It was a pretty good blow at the time, not making middle school basketball. Sure. Um, and so we had a rec basketball league that played over at Crestline for the kids that didn't play school ball. And I dominated that. So yeah, had a little chip on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I had a chip on my shoulder. I wanted okay. to I could play. But, yeah, but I didn't play basketball after seventh grade. So played baseball and football both through high school, and um, thought about walking on to Alabama, but decided uh, I wasn't quite skilled enough to play at the college level. Yeah, a little different up there. Yeah, they had big kids there. Big they, kids. They weren't little kids. Yeah, a little like different, me. different, different gene pool sometimes. You know. Yeah, they they were real athletes. They yeah. had they had Hall of Fame NFL guys playing for them at linebacker, which was my position. So. You know, I played linebacker in high school at probably 5'10", 185 pounds. And they had Cornelius Bennett and Derek Thomas, who were both 6'3 to 6'5", you know, 260, and were a lot faster than me, and both in the NFL Hall of Fame and College Football Hall of Fame. So it was a good decision not to yeah. play. Yeah. Well, that's sure. one of the things that I noticed when I first came here, is you stand on the sidelines, and it's a group of individuals who just – don't look like normal human beings. Yeah, um, and it's just impressive to see. And I think we, we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, you know, as as far as uh, went to high school locally, what was the impetus? Uh, obviously, you said you went from local high school here, went to University of Alabama. At what point did you decide or realize you wanted to go into medicine and become a doctor or a surgeon? Yeah, you know, people have asked me that through my life, and really, I didn't have like a, a sentinel moment where I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but. Nobody in my family was, was a doctor. I didn't have any extended relatives that were doctors. You know, my father was a tractor heavy equipment salesman. My mom was a teacher, um, but really didn't work when I was a kid and then got back into substitute teaching when I was in high school, but really didn't have any experience with any family members. But growing up where I grew up in, in Mountain Brook in Birmingham, a lot of my friends' parents were physicians. And so I saw a lot of it, and I think just for whatever reason when I was a kid because I was good in math and science and good student people started thinking that I was going to be a doctor and it kind of um, I guess encouraged me to, to do that as I moved through the system by the time I was in high school I knew I wanted to be a doctor and so I started doing uh, summer internships and research with different people I worked with 
Dr. Kirkland's cardiovascular lab at UAB one summer uh, doing some heart rhythm research on, on animals, you know, and got to experience that. I got to watch some surgery for the first time when I was in high school. I thought that was pretty cool. And, and so I kind of, I didn't know exactly what field, but I knew I wanted to be in medicine in high school and certainly continued that. I went into engineering in college for a major, mainly because my father was an engineer and I thought he was, you know, it was pretty cool that he could fix anything. So he could, as an electrical engineer, he could, he could wire a car, he could wire a house, he could fix a transmission. Um, you know, he was pretty multi-talented and I thought that would be a good, good field for any form of medicine. So went into engineering and ended up being a good decision, I think. Yeah, well, I think it was interesting, too, because you and Jeff Dugas were both chemical engineers, uh, which I obviously understand the the engineering aspect of problem solving, right. finding a solution. What was it about chemical engineering? that? So, so I'm not sure what Jeff's deal was. For me, I was in electrical to start with. So I started out as a freshman, and I was going to go, you know, my high school class had a lot of really intelligent people in it. It was very competitive. And most of the people in my high school class went to Ivy League schools or big, you know, prestigious um, academic institutions across the country and and so I was actually going to go to Duke and do engineering um, I actually had an experience where I went with one of my a guy that you ahead of me that was a freshman at Duke for a weekend Memorial Day weekend and I'd already pretty much decided to go to Duke to college to undergrad and went up there and spent four days there and it wasn't me I mean it just it was just not what I was looking for in college yeah. it was um, a different feel I didn't have a lot of fun <laughs> It was not exactly what I was looking for. So, you know, ultimately I decided to stay stay in, and go to Tuscaloosa, which I think was a really good decision at the end of the day. Um, my teachers and counselors at Mount Brook thought I was crazy, you know, for settling to go to Tuscaloosa, but it ended up being a really good decision. Um, and I think engineering, in electrical engineering, would have been a really good path still. But when I sat down with my advisor after my freshman year and told him I wanted to do medicine, he said it was going to take me five and a half years to get through college because there was no way in electrical engineering to meet the prerequisites for the MCAT to do biology and chemistry and the stuff you had to do. And so we looked at my current you know, load and said, all right, if you do summer school two summers, you can still make it out in four years doing chemical. And I knew nothing about chemical engineering. Yeah. But that was the only choice where I could do engineering and go to med school in gotcha. four years. Okay. So you kind of almost had a necessity more yeah, than Yeah, necessity. Else. And it ended up being a good, good path. And now a lot of people do that. It's pretty common in the chemical engineering program in the University of Alabama, my daughter just finished uh, two years ago, they have about a third of their class going to medicine usually. Yeah. So it's a pretty common path. But when I was there, I was the only one in the program that was going to medical school. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I think I mentioned this before with uh, Jeff as well. I think for me, if I had hindsight now, I would have done engineering of some sort because yeah. of the amount of influence it has on your ability to problem solve. I think it really heightens that. Yeah, and I think biomedical is, is the field that most kids go into now, biomedical engineering, and it's a great choice. They didn't have that in Tuscaloosa when I was there, and very few places had biomedical engineering in, in 1986. But, you know, realistically, the engineering mindset, you know, people call it problem solving, but really it's, I think, the test that you take in engineering, the way you learn how to process things, you know, they let you have the formulas for the, most of, for the test. You don't have to memorize formulas. You can go in with a formula sheet, but you've got to figure out how to process the problem into the right formula and how to get the right answer. And I think that's a lot of what we do in medicine. I mean, you know the MRI findings, you know the X-ray findings. If you don't look at them yourself, you can even read a report from a specialist like a radiologist, but you got to figure out how to get from where the patient is now to the you know to their goal. And so it's, it's a lot of problem solving. Yeah. And then after 
University of Alabama, you ended up going to medical school at uh, UAB here in Birmingham, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, and UAB, uh, you know, at the time had a really good reputation, still does. And I think it was a great, it was a great training program. You know, it was a good mix of really good academic teachers, plus a really good clinical experience. So I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. And was it in medical school that you decided you ultimately wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think, you know, as I went through the process, even through college, I started talking to doctors and people I knew and kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something procedural. You know, I knew I liked fixing things. So some medical specialties where you just, you know, see patients, monitor disease, give medications and don't really change anything, I didn't really like. I liked things that I could fix. And so I actually came down at the end. I thought about doing cardiovascular surgery. I came down at the very end of my medical school process between GYN oncology, so doing female cancer surgery really? and orthopedics, yeah. And the reason I like GYN Oncology is because UAB has a really good program, really good staff, faculty. Um, and when I was rotating on the OBGYN service as a medical student, they let me do a lot of surgery. Okay. So they actually let me get my hands in there and do stuff, and I got to fix things. And I thought it was really you know, cool surgery, and you could really help people. And so I actually went right at the beginning of my fourth year of medical school. I had not done orthopedic rotation yet. I went to visit one of my friend's parents, a guy named Charles Robinette, who's OBGYN in Birmingham. And Dr. Robinette's son, Wade, had dated my sister growing up, and so I knew Dr. Okay. Robinette pretty well. And so I went into his office, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about OBGYN and oncology versus orthopedics. And I looked on his desk, and he had a, he had a physician in sports medicine orthopedic journal on his desk, and he's OBGYN. And I said, why, why do you have that journal? He said, well, my kids play sports. I want to learn what this stuff is. And I really don't know a lot about it, so I'm trying to keep up with what's going on with sports. He said, if you can get orthopedics, do that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, okay, <laughs> but, okay, but yeah, yeah. Well, why? He's like, well, you know, OBGYN is, is very gratifying, and, you know, I like what I do. But the reality is it's, it's a very time-intensive. Even when you're late in your career, you're still up all night, every night, and, and babies come at times when you can't can't choose you can't necessarily schedule things so you're, you're there's a lot of late nights and late weekends and and things that that are not things i really want to do in my mid-50s or late 50s and my orthopedic friends can schedule most of their stuff and do most of their stuff electively and sports medicine's cool and and i think he was yeah. he was a closet orthopod really yeah and so he encouraged me to do orthopedics and so i did it that was kind of the, the that was kind of the straw that, that straw broke back yeah, yeah. And then which eventually led you to Campbell Clinic. What was it about Campbell Clinic that you identified as a place that you wanted to be or among others that you saw was kind of the uh, place that you felt that it was going to further your training? Yeah, I think Campbell Clinic in, in Memphis um, has a good reputation. It's been one of the oldest training programs in the country. You know, the process through medical school when you start doing residency interviews, you kind of pick a, a list of, of people that, that you want to potentially train with. And I had about 10 places I was going to interview. And as I went through the process... I interviewed the first four or five places and liked a lot of places. Probably my favorite place initially was Charlotte, mm-hmm. um, Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte. thought they had a great program. Um, and then I went to Memphis, and I really liked it. it. It had a pretty big program. We had eight residents a year, which was a big program, um, 32 in the program over, overall. They covered a bunch of hospitals. They got a lot of volume. They got to do a lot of cases. They were very active. They took a lot of call, which wasn't necessarily great. They did a lot of trauma, which can be good or bad. But ultimately, when it came down to it, I, I kind of did the same thing I did in medical school. Is I, I asked a couple of guys in town that I knew that were orthopedic surgeons, Kenny Bramlett being one of them, who I was later partners with. I said, I've got these opportunities. I think these are the places I can go. You know, I like Carolinas. I like Duke. I like 
Campbell Clinic. I like Gainesville, Florida. I like these places. Where do you think I ought to go? And they said, well, if you if you got a chance, go to Campbell Clinic. So I, they gave me the advice to go there um, because of the reputation of their place, and I think it was a really good decision because yeah. I did get a lot of – you get a lot of experience, um, much more than some of the other programs I might have chosen. Yeah, I think the hands-on experience is an underrated aspect of any program. Yeah, no doubt. And that's true for fellowships too. You know, right. Any, any training program. There's some programs that have the big name and you'll get great experience and great education and other programs that don't have the big academic institution, I think, that give you a little bit more hands-on that I think at the end of the day provides more tangible factors that you'll use in, in practice going forward, uh, which I think is something that when you're going through the process, all you see initially is the the big name and yeah, no you're shooting for that. And, and as you come through it, you realize the priority may not necessarily just be the name. Yeah, I think some of the, you know, in residency especially, the biggest names in the business from a medical standpoint are oftentimes the worst training programs mm-hmm. because the, the you know, you may get a lot of secondary experience and get to watch a lot of surgery, but you get very little autonomy. And so I think you want to be at a place that has a system, whether it's a lot of trauma or, or just a big volume where you can do some things and learn how to operate and learn how to take care of patients. And, you know, the nice thing about Memphis and Campbell Clinic was that, you know, we had the trauma service, we had the VA service, we had Labonner, we had a lot of different places we worked, but at each place, the further you moved up to residency, the more autonomy you got and decision-making you got. And you had great backup and great advice from your mentors, and they would help you, and you had a lot of help in surgery, but but each time you got to make a lot of decisions that you might not make other places. And so, so I felt like I came out of Campbell Clinic pretty well trained and pretty much ready to go into practice, you know, except for some of the specifics and, and fine-tuning things. Yeah. And did you always know, even going into Campbell Clinic, that you wanted to be a sports medicine specialist, or did that ever change, or qu- did you question that throughout your five years? Yeah, I thought, even going into orthopedics, I thought I probably wanted to do sports medicine. I didn't know what that meant, but um, I thought orthopedics was all sports medicine, really, you know, going into it. I, I think you, sometimes you don't learn a lot about it until you get into it, but um yeah, I mean, sports medicine was always kind of my focus. Being an athlete, liking sports, I'm a, you know, I'm one of those guys that'll be at a game on Friday night and a game on Saturday, even if I wasn't working it. So, yeah. um, I just enjoy that that part of, of of sports. But other parts of orthopedics, I liked a lot of them, but but sports medicine was pretty obvious what I wanted to do. Yeah, which obviously then brought you to Birmingham right. with Dr. James Andrews and Bill Clancy. Did you? identify Andrews or this fellowship as a place that you felt was going to be optimal or did you just were looking for a place to come back close to home? The Andrews name, even in 1994 when I was in residency and then 99 when I finished, you know, he was always kind of the preeminent sports medicine guy in my mind. He moved to Birmingham when I was a senior in high school from Columbus, Georgia in 1986. Uh, He had done surgery on one of my college roommates, John Casimus, who was a football player in Alabama. And so Casimus had told me about him. I knew about him. You know, John, when we were in college during the summer, he was my roommate. He was in, he lived in Bryant Hall during the during the school year. But he always used to say that you know you're going you're going to orthopedics, you're going to be the James Andrews, next James Andrews. Yeah. And he used to always say that. And so I knew who Dr. Andrews was. I'd never met him. And so when I was at Memphis, I was just very fortunate in that not knowing as I accepted the residency position. The Campbell Clinic had a really close relationship with this place in Birmingham with Dr. Andrews and Dr. Clancy. And so they traditionally sent somebody from Campbell Clinic to Andrews and Clancy to train as fellows. And as I got through the process, it was it was really fortunate because if I'd been at 
you know, one of the other five places I was deciding between for residency, there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't have had the opportunity to come back here as a fellow. Right, right. But it worked out well. Yeah. When you first arrived in Birmingham and, and met Dr. Andrews and Dr. Clancy, what was your first impression or what was your first experience with them like? <laughs> you know, they're, they're very different people. I mean, both of them are awesome. Um, personalities, very polar opposite. You know, Bill Clancy, very driven, very loud, very opinionated, very smart, you know, innovative, always thinking about the the whys and the hows and how to make it better and all that. Um, Dr. Andrews, very Southern gentleman, quiet, the opposite, you know, was more laid back and was still driven, but had a very different personality. And so, you know, we had the benefit as fellows of working with each of them for six months. So we'd go three months with Dr. Andrews and three months with Clancy and three months with Andrews, three months with Clancy. And, and it was like different worlds. I mean, you'd go yeah. from one world to the other. Their, their opinions were totally different. Their techniques were totally different. And it really allowed you a chance to kind of decide what you liked best, what you thought worked best, maybe mix the two together and, and come up with how you're going to do things you get in practice. So it was a, it was a great experience. And, and obviously got to see a lot of, a lot of interesting people and, and learned a ton during that year, probably more than I did during my five years in residency, really. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Dr. Andrews was that really makes him who he is? There are plenty of very driven, very successful surgeons, but there's only one James Andrews. What, yeah. what about him do you think allowed him to become who he is? I think he, he has a unique ability and something I've really tried to emulate over the years of being able to make the patient comfortable. So regardless of what the injury is, what the problem is, what the situation is, whether they're a you know, general high school athlete or a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a professional athlete, when they leave his office, I think they feel comfortable that he's figured out what's going on and is going to take care of them. And then he can communicate with them. So he's basic enough in most of his description that patients understand what's going on enough that they feel comfortable and they don't feel overwhelmed. And so, you know, I think that comfort level, whether you're a pro athlete or whether you're a, a high school athlete, I think you leave being confident that you're going to get better. And that psychology is really important. I've seen a lot of examples of the opposite where either a really good surgeon didn't explain things well, or they, they confused the patient, or they laid a lot of crepe and gave them negative vibes where the patient thought that this was going to be a really bad surgery, a really difficult outcome, and they don't do well. So I think you know the psychology of, of what we do, we probably – in sports medicine and probably all of medicine, you're about 90% psychologist, psychiatrist, and about yeah. 10% doctor. Um, and he was really, he's really a master at that. He's, he's the best at taking a really bad injury and making the patient feel like they're going to be fine. Yeah. That's a very unique talent among doctors, let alone among, you know, surgeons. And I think the tendency as, as a doctor is to, to go the opposite. The tendency is to make it seem bad so that then if you have a good outcome, things are better than the patient expected. Everybody's afraid that if you make it seem good and they have a bad outcome, they're going to be mad at you. So, so doctors by nature, I think, want to be negative and hope for the best rather than be positive. And you know, he was the first guy I saw that was really aggressive about that. And he was, I mean, we, I'd see patients with him that I knew weren't going to do well in my mind, and he would pat them on the back and tell them we be fine, and then they were fine. I yeah. Like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> it's like a Jedi <laughs> mind trick. How did that yeah. work? Yeah. Yeah, they've got a bad injury. They've got a terrible knee, and he tells them they're fine, and all of a sudden they walk out fine. So yeah, it's a it's a unique talent. He's very good. It's a gift. It. You complete your fellowship, and as I mentioned, you know, leading up to this, Doctor Andrews identified you and Doctor Dugas as two guys who clearly had a lot of talent, clearly understood 
what his goals were and, and he felt that you two could carry those on. What do you think it was that he saw in you that allowed him to choose and trust you to bring you here and, and continue his legacy? You know, I think part of it, I mean, for both of us was good timing because I think he was, you know, he was in the mode of thinking about his succession and about his plans moving forward. So it, it was, some of it was timing. You know, some of it was the fact that I was from this area and, and we had a lot of connections. And so he knew that I fit in from a community standpoint. Um, and then part of it is that my personality is a lot like his. I mean, I think he he saw that from a treatment standpoint, I had a lot of the same when I, whether I talked to athletes or patients, I was able to help them get through the process kind of like he did. And I think he, he probably saw that I you know, had a lot of the same patient characteristics that he did. So I yeah. think he, he felt comfortable with me doing, you know, taking care of his patients, basically. And from my understanding, I actually knew Jeff's side of the story that he had actually signed a contract to go to South Carolina. Yeah. I didn't realize you had also signed a separate contract. Is that correct? No, I, no, I didn't sign a contract. Basically okay. what happened is about – mid fellowship so probably december january we were in surgery one day and dr andrews asked me what i was going to do and i said i you know i'm going to stay somewhere not too far away my family's here and i've talked to groups in tuscaloosa and huntsville and different places tuscaloosa was probably my most likely decatur was probably second where i would have gone if i didn't sit here and he said well you know i want you to stay here and take over my my situation i'm going to work that you know change things and this was 1999 so I've got a five-year plan, and I'm going to kind of move that direction and slow down, and I want you to kind of take it, take care. And he said, me and Bill Clancy both have, according to our deal with Alabama Sports Medicine, we can each bring in a successor. So I want you to come in and, and do that. And that was in December. And then I didn't hear anything else through the rest of the year. I didn't get a contract. I didn't see a offer. I didn't see any – you know, I had no idea what was going on. I just kind of assumed – and then we got into like June, July, and I thought, well, man, I better start looking other places because <laughs> I, I still haven't had any confirmation that that's going to happen. Don't know if I have a job yet, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I have a job yet. And so I reached back out to some of the people I talked to to see if the other jobs were still available. And he got wind of it somehow and said, well, what are you doing? You're staying here. I was like, well, don't, don't I need to sign something? He was like, you don't need to worry about that. <laughs> so, so I don't know that we ever signed a contract. Really? I mean, I signed one eventually, but yeah. it was like in August sometime. It was like long after my fellowship was done and we yeah. actually i mean i took the first day of call for the group alabama sports medicine like july the 29th of my fellowship year so it was two or three days before i actually finished my fellowship and i'll never forget the first case i ever did was a poor little lady that was in a nursing home that that had fallen out of bed and broke her femur oh, man. And, and i fixed it and um i remember thinking man i'm still a fellow but i'm doing this i wonder if one of this is technically okay i'm, <laughs> if, I'm not sure i'm supposed to be doing this well i'm sure she was in good hands and Probably felt felt just fine afterwards. So, what were your first few years like here? You know, one training alongside your good buddy and fellowship classmate Jeff Dugas, but also under Dr. Andrews and Dr. Clancy. Because obviously, you're no longer a fellow. But as Dugas mentioned, if you mentioned before, you didn't have time when you were had scheduled surgeries. You kind of were pushed towards the back of the uh, bus, and a lot of times ended up not starting until 9 p.m. What was what were your first years like here? Yeah, I think it ended up being a good thing. It was it was stressful early on but the process in those days we had a fairly busy or over at hell south you know a lot of rooms a lot of cases it was really high volume for all the doctors that were there including dr andrews and clancy and there really wasn't space for us to do much and so for jeff and i you know our daily world was really in office we'd see patients that came to see us but we'd also help andrews with some of his stuff dr andrews with some of his stuff 
And then on surgery days, we would help Dr. Andrews primarily and sometimes Clancy and help train the fellows and teach them what we needed to do until they got done. And then we'd do our cases. And so, you know, sometimes that was two o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes it was 10 o'clock at night. And it was really difficult scheduling cases because, you know, I would bring in a patient, say, for a knee replacement on a Tuesday, thinking that I might be able to go at two o'clock. And then at 10 o'clock, the patient was still sitting there waiting, and oh, I was no. waiting. And we'd start, oh, a, we'd start a 10 p.m. knee replacement that finished at midnight. And the patients, you know, it, it took some extra TLC because patients were frustrated. I was frustrated. I didn't have anything to do about it. I couldn't change anything. And if Dr. Andrews had finished at 3 o'clock and they brought the patient at 10 o'clock, everybody would be mad. So sure. it really, I didn't have any way to get around it. But ultimately... As that progressed, that happened for four or five years, really, mm-hmm. of my, in my career. But what it did is it, is it allowed me to spend a lot of extra time with Dr. Andrews and Dr. Clancy. And so as more than just a fellow, I was able to really step back and, and assess why we were doing certain things a certain way, how we were doing them. I got a lot more experience in surgery because for most guys, when they go into practice, they're not real busy when they start. And so they, they may do X number of cases in a year and they kind of get out of practice a little bit in some ways well I was doing twice the volume because I was doing my cases and his cases with him and so you know I think from experience standpoint it gave me you know that 10,000 repetition thing that Malcolm Gladwell talks about I Mm -hmm. got it pretty quickly yeah um, rather than having to do it over a five or ten year period right obviously during your fellowship and during that time what is one of the most valuable things Dr. Andrews taught you either surgically or in clinic you know I, I think there are a lot of things really but Probably in clinic, the number one thing is listen to the patient. It happened today, seeing patients. The patient had had a telemedicine visit with another doctor um, during the COVID pandemic, and nobody had actually seen the patient, but they had already had an MRI done. She was a high school softball player and had shoulder pain. And I think if you just went by her kind of telemedicine MRI finding, she had a rotator cuff problem. But the reality is when you talk to her, her shoulder didn't hurt. It was her neck and her back that hurt. And so, you know, asking the patient, where do you hurt? And sitting down and listening to them and letting them kind of vent and explain everything tells you more than any study does. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that's what he taught me in clinic is that when you're seeing patients in the office, you can't go by the MRI or the x-rays or any of the previous records or anything necessarily in terms of what they have. You got to you got to listen to the patient and and always sit down and, and really focus on what they're saying. You can't just kind of gloss over that and go by the MRI, which I think a lot of, a lot of people get trapped by. And then in surgery, I, I think the, the key in surgery is you've got to have kind of a routine for each process that you go through, and you don't change that no matter how important the person is. So, you know, whether you're operating on on a high school kid or a Tua Tagovailoa, you got to treat it the same way in surgery. Otherwise, you mess things up. You can't try to do something special or do something different or – put more stitches in or more anchors in you, you can't really change what you do because you've got that's a tried and true way that you've learned how to do it and if you try to do something different a lot of times you end up messing up yeah one of the sayings that to, will always stick with me is in respect to the idea of maintaining you know a consistent approach to a surgery is a thousand tiny knives yeah can you I explain, with that. Can yeah. You explain what that means yeah you know that came up as, as i started training fellows with dr andrews and and i think training other doctors is a really really unique experience in that you get to see a lot of the same things happen over and over again mistake wise and you know they're coming and you can stop them if you get time you know if you get a chance but it doesn't really help the guy if you stop them because 
sometimes you have to make that mistake to make it memorable or to change your behavior. So, you know, what I learned is that like for a simple case like an ACL, which, you know, when you do a lot of ACLs, it, it's kind of those cases that you feel like is simple and it's not stressful and, you know, you kind of know the steps and you know what's going to happen and it's predictable and you can do a predictable ACL and have a good outcome. But when you don't have all those steps down, there are a thousand things you can mess up. It's not just three or four things. There are a thousand things you can mess up from the initial incision all the way through the very end. And understanding where those are coming from and what each opportunity for a mistake is keeps you from making them. So sometimes you have to make those mistakes, unfortunately, and most of them are not critical. They can all be corrected. But but until you make most of those mistakes or at least see them being made, you don't even know they're there. And so those thousand tiny knives are you know, or opportunities for, for mistakes that you don't even know are there that can hit you. And, and I think that's, you know, that that's the benefit of fellowship is you get to see, maybe not a thousand of them, but you get to see a hundred of them or 200 of them. And once you know those are there, you can prevent those mistakes. You may still get something when you're in practice that hits you, you didn't even know it was, it was an opportunity. I can probably tell you it was eventually if you ask me, but, you know, not every mistake will you see during your fellowship. Uh, and that's the learning curve. So the learning curve in orthopedics and medicine in general, I think, is learning how to, to be consistent, but also how to prevent all the, the complications and problems that can happen. And once you get to that point, then you, you're pretty comfortable. Yeah. Do you think with that level of, of detail orientation and premeditation of understanding what potential risks or what potential downfalls you know, belie you in an upcoming surgery, has it always been part of your approach? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and part of that is probably my personality. I mean, whether I'm, you know, fixing a shoulder or, or working on a door at my house, I mean, anything I do, I'm, I'm trying to think, all right, what's the quickest and best way to get this done, Yeah. number one? And then number two, what problems could knock me out of whack and give me a pro- give me an issue? And, and I think in surgery, you know, if, if you're fixing something that, that's a construction project or a broken doorknob at your house, you know, the downside is you may mess up the doorknob and have to buy a new one. Surgery is obviously a whole lot more risky. And so, you know, I think just my nature is I'm, I'm trying to to kind of pre-plan for every potential problem and try to keep it from happening. Well, I think it's a great way to approach things when it comes to yeah. irreplaceable <laughs> objects like a shoulder or a knee. Yeah, yeah. yeah it works out. And my feeling is that, you know, once you get to that point where you feel like you understand all those problems, it gives you a lot less stress doing surgery. I would agree, and I've, I've taken that from you personally and, and tried to apply that, and I think it really does does help. Ever since I've known you as a surgeon, one, educating me as, as a fellowship director, uh, as well as now in practice, you've always been a very confident, decisive surgeon, but I've never seen you where you've been either nervous or scared about a surgery, and, and granted, you've done thousands of surgeries, so you've seen everything. Was there a point in your career early on that you felt that nervousness um, that oftentimes a lot of guys early in their training feel? Yeah, I still do. I mean, I still get it. It's internally you get anxious, mainly about unusual cases or cases you don't do a lot. So, you know, if I have a, a posterior labor repair, for instance, tomorrow, I've got zero anxiety about that because I feel like, you know, unless something weird happens, I can kind of pre-plan and prevent all the problems and come out with a good labor repair. Um, something less common, you know, ladder J or some, some different kind of surgery that I don't do as much. I still get a little anxious about it and have to kind of think through it in my head. And, you know, I'll, before I go into surgery, I'll kind of think through the steps. And, you know, sometimes I'll even, you know, pull out YouTube and watch a video or something just to kind of think, all right, 
yeah, I know that, and I know that. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be anything unusual. It's just I think any time you do a procedure that's not already routine in your memory and that you're, you have all of that, that 10,000 repetitions of, of confidence, it still makes me anxious. I mean, it can be as something as simple as a meniscus transplant or something as difficult as a multi-ligament knee. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be the most difficult surgery. It's just some things you don't do every day. And that's why, you know, for me, specializing in sports medicine and kind of getting a niche in the things that I am comfortable with, you know, I would have a really hard time with my personality doing general orthopedics. And a lot of people do really well at it. One of my favorite partners of all time, Dr. Joe Sherrill, you know, does everything. Joe will fix a flexor tendon in a hand and an ACL and a total hip on the same day. My personality, I can't do that because each one of those things, I would feel like I was kind of three quarters prepared to go in there and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as confident. So um, I think it's good, you know, it's good and bad and that you can kind of over specialize, but I feel like I've got the things that I like to do shoulder knee, elbow pretty well figured out in my head anyway. You mentioned in one of the local publications here in a, in a great article about how you really remember the ones that didn't go well as opposed to the ones that did. And I identify with that, and I think a lot of people do. Is there one in particular that you can identify that sticks out in your head? You're like, man, I wish I would have done this, or I wish we had gone a little bit different direction? There's a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think success in surgery in, in orthopedics, you know, I think if you if you have a really successful career and you get really lucky and everything goes really well, you're still going to have three to five percent failure rate, you know, whether it's an ACL or rotator cuff, whatever. Um, and there's some that, you know, may have been technical problems on my part, some that were biologic, some might have been the patient's fault, some might have just been fate that they didn't, they didn't heal. But I think all of those people that have problems and complications, I remember their names pretty well. I mean, I could, I could almost list out a bunch of them right now. Um, and even when I see them on my schedule in the office now, it makes my heart rate go up, you yeah. know, because, because you know that they've had maybe not the best outcome and they may be happy as a clam, but you just know they're not as good as they could have been. And those are the people that you remember. I mean, the people that, you know, when I'm walking down the street with my kids and they come up to me and say, hi, and do you remember me? And I'm doing great. Thanks for my shoulder. I have no idea who they are. Yeah. But if they had a complication, I remember exactly who they were. Exactly what happened. So, yeah, I think that's human nature, unfortunately. And I've described it to people over the years that it's almost like kind of an NFL defensive back you need to have bad memory about some of the misses and you know NFL defensive backs if they can forget the guy that burned them on a touchdown pass and go play the next play they're probably better off but it's hard to do yeah. and so I think the the complications and the patients that haven't done as well really stick out in your mind and they really um, in some ways inspire you to work harder I think if you if you remembered all your successes you'd probably get complacent yeah I think one of the unique stories that you could speak to the opposite of in terms of something you probably do remember a really positive outcome that you were directly involved with very, very uh, closely was the Drew Brees experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great story combining what you described about Andrews before in terms of the ability to deliver a different perspective and good news, as well as the idea of kind of really working towards a difficult goal. Can you describe the experience with Drew Brees and how he kind of went through that and came to you guys? Yeah, it was interesting. So Drew was well known, but I didn't know much about him when he got hurt with the Chargers. It was, I think, 2005 and the end of his contract with the San Diego Chargers um, was diving for a ball the last game of the season, fumbled the ball on his own goal line and dove for it and dislocated his shoulder and had had a really unusual injury where he dislocated the shoulder and tore his rotator cuff. 
um, in his throwing arm, which was you know a devastating injury for a quarterback, especially an NFL quarterback. At that point, that was I'd been with Dr. Andrews for six years, so I'd been there a year as a fellow and five years as a partner. And we had just moved over to St. Vincent's about that time. We were operating over here at the Women and Children's Center, and not our current building. And I'll never forget, I was in the office seeing patients, and he came and got me. And I had done thousands of surgeries, Dr. Andrews, and I don't think he had ever introduced me to a patient before surgery. Sometimes if it was a local community person I knew, we'd go in the recovery room and talk to the family, and he'd say, hey, you know, Lyle was in there with me, helping me or whatever. But Drew was the first guy I remember where he brought me in before surgery with Drew and his fiance, who's now his wife. And he said, hey, this is Dr. Kane. He's going to be in surgery with you tomorrow. You know, what you have is a really tough injury, and he does more of this stuff than I do, so he's going to be helping me. And so you may see his name come up in some stuff. I just want you to know who he is. So I got to meet him. And then Drew's surgery, he did have, he had a bad injury. He had a you know, really significant labral tear. He had a significant rotator cuff tear. Um, we fixed it all through the scope, and, and everything went pretty smoothly. And then afterwards, it just so happened that, you know, Drew was here rehabbing, and he came to, to our church, St. Church, St. Luke's, and I go to. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so he was in church behind us a few times at St. Luke's with his fiance, And anyway, it was a good experience. So I got to know Drew pretty well. My son at the time was five. Edward, my, my oldest son, who's 19 now, about turned 20, was five. And Drew was behind us. And, of course, Edward was a sports fan at five, but he didn't know who anybody was. And I said, hey, the guy behind you is a good quarterback. I said, if he ever you know, makes it to the Super Bowl, I'll take you. And then here we are four years later with the Saints. Um, they beat, I think, the 49ers in the NFC Championship game that year. And Edward came running at nine years old and said, we're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that, that, I ended up having to take him to Miami to the Super Bowl. <laughs> but um, good experience. You know, yeah. Drew was one of those perfect situations where he had a really bad injury, I think, 99 out of 100 orthopedic surgeons would have told him, hey, this is a bad injury. You'll probably never play football again, but we're going to try. And I think that's the nature of the business. Is mm-hmm. It's a bad injury. We're going to fix it the best we can, but your, your results are probably not going to be good. And I think the reason people do that again is fear of retribution if they don't do well. So I think people are thinking, all right, if I tell him he's going to do well and he doesn't, then he's going to be mad at me and he's going to think it's my fault. Well, Dr. Andrews did the exact opposite. He was like, you got a bad injury, but we got a great repair on it. And so from that moment on, Drew Brees, being a real positive guy, said, I'm going to play again. I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, he rehabbed with Kevin Wilk here at, at, in Birmingham for seven months or so. Um, his fiance's family happened to live out in Highland Lakes in Birmingham, so they stayed out there with him. And he just lived here and rehabbed with Kevin. Um, you know, a lot of the rest of it's been publicized, but when Nick Saban was the coach of the Dolphins, they brought in Drew to, to potentially hire him as a quarterback. The medical team at that time looked at Drew's MRI and said he'll never play again. They told him to his face he'd never play again. Drew came back really upset, was mad at everybody, mad at us, mad at Dr. Andrews because he, he thought we had, had over-promised, which is always the fear. And Dr. Andrews basically told him, hey, you know, you have a bad injury. We told you that, but you're doing great. You're going to play again. And then the Saints took him primarily because that their medical staff had changed around because of Katrina. Okay. And so the Saints ended up getting Drew really by luck because of the fact that their medical staff was in flux and they really didn't didn't have anybody to, to critique him very well. <laughs> and so um, you know, the the Saints ended up with the probably one of the best quarterbacks of all time, you know, and, and a great history and the leading passer just by circumstance really. Yeah. That's incredible. I didn't realize the fact that that was how he ended up in uh, New Orleans. 
Yeah, I think I think Michael Brunet was the doctor for the Saints. I think he left during Katrina and went to Shreveport, and and they were kind of in flux. And I'm not even sure who the medical staff was at that time. But but the bottom line was they took him. I think based just on Dr. Andrews' recommendation. And you know now Dr. Andrews now and Chip Bankston, the medical staff for the Saints. You know they're all friends, and and we all know each other. And and Chip trained here at, at UAB. Yeah, I think if it had been a different situation, the Saints medical staff might have looked at Drew and said, "You're never going to play again." Yeah, and and it might have been totally different. And and Nick Saban, you know, might have taken Drew, different circumstance, and and he might be in Miami instead of Tuscaloosa right sure. now. So, which would have been a totally different story for Miami, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. All it takes is one one little change. One little change. World. You mentioned Nick Saban, which kind of will bring us to the topic of the University of Alabama. Obviously, being a local guy going there as an undergraduate and following them throughout your whole really life, uh, you end up becoming a team physician. When did that take place? How did your transition occur? And you were there before Coach Saban. What was it like when he got there? Give us a little bit of insight into your, your time at Alabama. So again, kind of like joining the practice here, it was really just very fortunate timing in that when I was finishing fellowship in 2000, the University of Alabama had decided they wanted Jim Andrews as a consultant. So Dr. Andrews had taken care of Auburn uh, when he was at Houston Clinic, some with Dr. Houston in the late 70s. When he came here in 1986, Dr. Andrews and Dr. Lemack started taking care of Auburn again when Terry Bowden was the coach, I think around 1990. And, and they've been taking care of Auburn for several years. So this is 10 years after that. And, and Mal Moore, who's the athletic director in Tuscaloosa, uh, Dr. Andrews was his doctor. He had done hip replacements on Coach Moore. Mal Moore treated a lot of the staff down there. And so Coach Moore, Mal Moore, um, wanted Dr. Andrews to be a consultant for the orthopedic program for the University of Alabama. And just because of the timing of things, it worked out that Dr. Andrews, you know, didn't feel comfortable doing both Alabama and Auburn at the same time because he couldn't be there every every game. And so he kind of positioned me down there to help help with Alabama. You know, Alabama already had a medical staff. You know, the same primary care doctor, Dr. Jimmy Robinson, was there. You know, great, great guy. And another great guy, Les Fowler, was there as an orthopedic surgeon. And they really needed kind of a second opinion consultant so for the first i'd say seven years that i was in tuscaloosa from 2000 2007 you know i wasn't necessarily required to be there for every game um, but i was there kind of on behalf of dr andrews to learn the players figure out the injuries if they wanted a second opinion in birmingham you know i was i was there to, to give that to him with dr andrews so i traveled to most of the games i went to just pretty much every game since 2000 I was also taking care of the University of West Alabama Division II school at the time, and so I was spending a lot of time with those guys as well. Um, and then when Coach Saban came, he had a previous relationship with Dr. Andrews, going back to the time at LSU, mm-hmm. uh, where we had taken care of some of his players in the early 2000s. And at 2000, up to 2007, when he was with the Dolphins, you know, we had operated on his quarterback that they ended up taking, Dante Culpepper, as well as a lot of his Dolphins. And so when Coach Saban came to Tuscaloosa, his confidence level was with Dr. Andrews. Um, he didn't know me. We didn't know each other. But I think just because I was Dr. Andrews' representative at the time, you know, we kind of became the, the primary orthopedic part of the university medical care. Got it. In 2007. What was your first interaction with Coach Saban like? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'd been through three coaches at Alabama by then. So when I first got there, Dennis Franchoni was the coach. Mike DuBose was finishing about the time we, I started. I, I got to know Coach DuBose, but never really worked with him. Um, Dennis Franchoni was the coach. He was very serious, very organized, very much a CEO personality, but didn't want to talk to the medical staff at all. I mean, I think in the two years he was a coach, 
he probably didn't and still doesn't know who I am because he would talk to the training staff, to Rodney Brown, the athletic trainer, and then Rodney and I would talk and Dr. Andrews would talk and Les would talk with him. But Coach Franchoni really didn't want to have contact with medical staff. We went from that to Mike Shula. Mike Shula came from you know, the NFL, you know, dad, Don Shula, and Mike was a quarterback in Alabama about the time I was in college. And Mike was very laid back, very easy to talk with. You know, we'd have a lot of conversations and any any questionable issues, he would he would leave it to us to decide. And so he was very easy to deal with. Then we had Mike Price for a few months. And Mike Price was there for about four months. He was also a very grandfatherly kind of figure, very nice guy. It would have been a really exciting kind of football to watch with kind of the throw-it-around football back in, in those days with Coach Price. And then Coach Saban came in. And, and I knew before Coach Saban got there his personality just from media and, and from talking to the LSU doctors, Brett Bankston and LSU, that he was going to be very um, detail-oriented and you know want to know details about everything. And so I was kind of prepared for that. My first experience with him was actually an injury. We had a, a player who got injured the first practice of Coach Saban's spring um, before they even had pads on, non-contact, um, named Demetrius Good, and he um, injured his knee. And so my first experience with Coach Saban really was going to talk with him about that knee injury. And he wanted to know everything. He wanted to know what I was doing, what procedure, what graft, how I was doing it. I mean, he wanted to know details that no coach no had coach, ever even yeah. thought about, much less asked about. So was, I knew from that point on he was – he wanted no specifics. And how has he been throughout his career and you working with him with your relationship in terms of uh, his response to athlete injuries? Uh, some coaches, I think, can put a little pressure on the athletes or the doctors to get the players back out there. From what I've, I've heard, not only from just the media, but also guys like Jeff Allen, and he he's actually really cares about the health of his players. Would you, would you say that's pretty consistent? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. I mean, I think from a medical standpoint, he's he's what you'd hope for. Now, he's, he's very... Uh, detailed, as I said, he wants to know the specifics. He wants to understand really why certain things take a certain amount of time to recover uh, for athletes. But ultimately, at the end of the day, every injury I've ever had with him, you know, he always says, "Look, I don't want this guy to get hurt. I don't want this guy to get worse. I want this guy to get well." He's worried about the player getting well, but he wants to know when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, he may not say he's playing tomorrow unless I say he's okay to play as a medical staff, but he wants to know when I'm going to give that okay. And he wants to be able to plan for it and have an idea when that's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, he wants to understand why the guy's not ready or why the guy's having trouble. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that kind of stuff. And he's, I think he really tries to understand all the intricacies of what we do to the point that he can not only process it, but he can, he can repeat a lot of it. And he does that on game days. When Jeff Allen and I talk to him about injuries post game, he will focus so hard at my, what I'm telling him that he can regurgitate most of it back immediately, really? despite the fact that it's medical stuff that you know he's not really trained in. So, so I think he's he's great to work with. He's never really, you know, given me a hard time about a player coming back or not coming back at a certain time, as long as I set the expectations appropriately. All right. And you mentioned Jeff Allen. He's obviously been a very big part of the healthcare team at Alabama and I had a great conversation with him on the podcast as well which is great and his explanation of coach Saban was very consistent with what you mentioned uh, detail-oriented demanding but also very understanding and really cares a lot about the players Uh, what is your experience working with a lot of other athletic trainers but you work with Jeff Allen what's your experience with him you know in, in terms of one being the main 
you know, athletic trainer that manages Alabama sidelines, but also just working with you as a surgeon and kind of being that intermediary and liaison? You know, I was really fortunate when I came to Birmingham to really be able to learn from a lot of um, a lot of Hall of Fame athletic trainers. So guys like R.T. Floyd at West Alabama and Brad Montgomery at West Alabama and Jim Skidmore at Jacksonville State and Rodney Brown at Alabama, guys that, that have been in the business for 30 to 45 years and really understand how to take care of athletes and all the things that goes into that. Communication, talking to families, talking to coaches, how to, how to do all that. I really believe that, you know, the 13 years that Coach Saban's been in Tuscaloosa and all the success he's had, you know, the number one person that's responsible for that is Coach Saban because it's his program mentality process, recruiting, all the stuff that he's done to set the university at that standard. The number two person responsible is Jeff Allen. There's no question. And, and it comes down to players trusting him. You know, I think players in the program from day one and currently trust Jeff. They know that he's going to do the best for them. Um, he's very aggressive about trying to get them well. So if there's a new machine, new process, recovery device, you know, whatever he knows might help him, he's going to find a way to get it. He's very knowledgeable. He understands the injuries, but he's also willing to listen. So if, if he doesn't understand about some specific injury that's not common, you know, we'll talk about it and I'll try to explain the rationale and the technology and what's going on and the, and the specific injury. And, and he really is good about understanding that and then relating it to Coach Saban. And the most important thing about Jeff is his ability to relate with Coach Saban because, you know, I think coaches focus and determination and drive. Jeff's got that same drive. And so, you know, I think Coach trusts Jeff just like the players trust Jeff. And that relationship is really critical because I, I've seen situations, you know, where it's gone the other way, where the athletic trainer and the coach don't get along or the players and the athletic trainer don't get along. And, and all those situations can break a team down, and it really makes it almost impossible to succeed. So, so I think you know we've had a lot of great athletes. The coaches have recruited a lot of great players. We've had a lot of great people at the university, and a lot of great coaches under Coach Saban, assistant coaches. But Jeff Allen's been the most important guy in my mind for for the program success, just because of the way the players trust him. I think that trust is a very important point. Jeff mentioned the idea, and we actually briefly got into it during our conversation about how that is such an important point for the players to be able to confide and trust and believe that the intentions of the athletic training and medical staff are in the best interest of the athlete. He also you know, mentioned the idea and, and talked on how not only you, but him as well as his entire staff are really an asset that oftentimes can be overlooked, but is an asset that can be used as a recruiting tool. And I've seen you, you know, before games where you have some recruits come in looking at potential kids who are coming in who do have injuries or, or things they've been dealing with and have had prior evaluations that may still you know have some lingering issues how do you approach that as you know someone who's not really on the recruiting tour with any of these guys but that's a big part of trying to let these athletes potential recruits know that you're there for them even though you've never met them before yeah i think that's interesting people probably don't realize we do that but when athletes come for official visits um, we're the medical staff, Jeff Allen included, are able to assess them and talk with them. And, you know, if they come from a after a high school game on Friday night to game on Saturday and they hurt their ankle or their shoulder or whatever, you know, we're able to look at that and, and help advise them. Um, and really, I look at it when I'm talking to those people, I try to treat those athletes just like I'm seeing in the office. So, you know, whether it's a team I take care of or a team I don't take care of or another high school out of state, I want that patient, that player, and his family to leave feeling like they've got a 
and understanding what the problem is, an understanding of how we're going to fix it or address it or what it takes to get it well, and confidence that we're going to do the right thing for them. And so the byproduct of that is if the athlete and the family are confident, it probably helps them feel better about their situation when they come to Tuscaloosa to play football. So so I think you know it probably is a recruiting tool. It's not really meant to be that. I'm not trying to get them rah-rah fired up about Alabama, um, but I try to treat them like I would if they're a player at Alabama or like a player at any school that we're covering or you know a patient in the office so that they get the feel of what it's going to be like once they get to school there. You know, Jeff had mentioned in as much really, and, and you can see that when those athletes are evaluated on those days, they're a little bit surprised that they're kind of being catered to and, and kind of the attention is being paid to them from the medical staff on a day when the medical staff has the actual players to deal with. So I think it's a pretty impressive thing that you guys have been able to do that. And I've seen you do it. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty reassuring, especially when they have family members too. So. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You know, I think people that don't live in the business we're in, the world we're in, don't realize that, that a lot of these elite athletes come from areas that don't have good medical care or any medical care in some cases. You know, these kids, you know, they may be playing in Florida or Alabama or Georgia or wherever, and they may be at a small school where they don't have a doctor on the sidelines, they don't have a clinic on Saturday morning, and so they get hurt, and the person treating them may be their coach. And so for a lot of them, it's scary, especially if you're a lead athlete and you think your future is playing professional football and you have an injury, that, that's a major crisis. And so... You know, being able to have an evaluation and to be comforted by whatever the diagnosis is, at least feel comfortable with what's going on, you know, I think it's a big advantage. And I suspect people do it at other schools. I don't know. I've, I've never been in a, another Division One locker room where we've examined a recruit, um, but they certainly have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, too, is if those players that you do assess decide to come to Alabama, they've already started to develop a relationship with the medical training staff, which obviously becomes very important. And one of the players that has come up consistently where that relationship has been such a special relationship was Kenyon Drake. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, we've been through the story about him you know, breaking his ankle at Ole Miss and then coming back and then breaking his forearm again. And you can fill in the story, but the, the concern was is because he broke his forearm again so late in the season that he wasn't going to be able to finish the year, correct? Yeah, so it, it was just bad timing. I mean, I mean, ultimately, he had a devastating injury at Ole Miss, fracture dislocation, you know, it was flown back that night. You know, Norman Waldrop, the foot and ankle, you know, our partner, fixed him with me that night. And he came back and did really well. I mean, better than expected, I would say, just overall as a running back. And he was having a great season, and it was his last year in Tuscaloosa. And we're at the end of the season. We're in the last three games of the regular season with SEC and playoff implications. And he breaks his arm on a special teams play, making a tackle on a kickoff. And, you know, at that point, well, we've had some bad experiences at Starkville, by the way, yeah. including this year. But, you know, when I walked down the field and, and Jeff was holding his arm, I thought, man, that's terrible. This poor kid, you know, he's he missed all of last season. This is his last season. He's had a really good year. We're about to probably make it to the playoffs, and he's not going to experience that. And I knew him pretty well by then. I knew he was a very positive guy, that Kenyon was – a lot of athletes are very positive, resilient people. And I knew that he had a chance to get back, but you know, realistically, to play after a broken arm as a running back within six to eight weeks is not normal. And so, I wasn't super optimistic, but he was. You know, he basically told Jeff and me at the same time. He said, "You know, I'm not going out like this. I'm going to play against Auburn," is what he said, which was two weeks later. Um, and realistically, you know, I'm going to play against the SEC championship game. I'm going to I'm going to play in the playoffs. And so I started kind of counting weeks in my head, you know, thinking, all right, this is Mississippi State, 
you know, we got LSU, then we got Western Carolina, then we got Auburn, then we, so I'm counting weeks. I'm thinking, all right, you know, if, if all goes really well, he can probably be back by the playoffs because we probably got about seven weeks or so before the playoffs start. Um, but instead he came back for the SEC championship game, you know, which was only like five weeks out, four weeks out. So, you know, part of that process, and, and I've mentioned it before, is that with Kenyon, his goal was obvious. You know, he said, I'm going to play, period. And so as a, as a physician, you're thinking, okay, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What's the potential complications? You know, if you go back early and this thing refractures, what's the problem there? You know, what are the risks to your future? Because he's going to be an NFL player most likely. And we kind of talked about that. And I said, look, I'm going to put a big, strong plate on this thing and, and make it as, as strong as I can, you know, probably stronger than I normally would just for a garden variety fracture. And then we'll see how quickly it heals. And what I didn't realize is that with Jeff Allen and the university and the, the process that we had going, you know, he got the engineering department involved. They made a special 3D mold of his arm and 3D printed a splint for him so he could, he could actually hold a ball right after surgery. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that went on that were behind the scenes that really helped. But the bottom line is by the time he got about five weeks out, he was super confident. He ran, I think the first play in the SEC championship game was a reverse to him, actually. And he ran the ball and stiff-armed somebody with that arm, and I figured we were pretty good after that. Yeah. Um, and he went on to win, win the national championship on that kickoff return that he ran against Clemson. So uh, that was great. And, you know, just his his excitement. I, I really believe, and, and I don't know what Kenny will say, but I really believe that that process of fighting back through those two injuries, you know, has really led to where he is today. I mean, that's, you know, he's a starting running back in the NFL, and – you know, I know he's got a lot of talent and he's a great player, but I bet that process established him as being more resilient and better able to, to play as a professional football player. Well, and you can tell from, you know, other, other accounts of the same story that his appreciation for you and Dr. Waldrop and Jeff Allen and the medical staff and, and being able to provide him that opportunity to get back, he was so thankful because you can see the pictures afterwards where the first people he came up to after he scored that touchdown was, was you guys. Yeah, that you was know. great. It was fun. You know, that's and, pretty and that's, impressive. That's the fun part of the game. You know, there's a lot of anxiety thinking about those things happening. But for me, you learn a certain amount of information through training, through residency and fellowship. And you have these thought processes in your head about timetables for injury recovery. But most of those timetables are kind of standardized, generalized over a large population. And so if you take a broken arm, for instance, like Kenyon had, you know, the, the data may say that it's completely healed at 12 weeks, but that was over a group of people that may go from 12 years old to 95 years old and all different types of, of athletes and non-athletes and different types of fractures and a lot of variables. And so really what I started doing early on after seeing a lot of these elite athletes just thinking okay you know what's the soonest I would be comfortable with this person returning to play if everything goes perfect and why and then if something were to go bad what's the worst possible outcome and if the person's willing to proceed with that plan then I don't have any problem with it because it's not a life or death thing you know, if it was a brain injury or a cervical spine injury, it might be different. But for most of these injuries, it's about function and, you know, long-term potential damage to other structures. And I felt like he was at low risk. And so guys like Kenyon or Julio Jones, all these other guys that have come back early from injuries, they're different. You know, they, they really, I believe they've got something different in their genetics that makes them more resilient, heal faster, less sensitive to injury. And, and that's why they are what they are. So so you've got to treat them a little differently in terms of your, your uh, thought process. And how many times with that approach, 
Do you think you would quote unquote, you think you've been burned being a little bit more aggressive or avant-garde? I think the only, I mean, I I can't think of a lot of episodes, but I think of a couple of guys where we had an injury that, that I thought was probably okay. And they were gung-ho. They're going to play. I mean, if I'd said, you're not going to play, they probably would have played, but then they went out and had a subsequent injury I had to address. Mm -hmm. Now they've, you know, one of those Eddie Jackson, when he broke his tibia, um, he had had some pain, never, never really like tibial stress fracture pain, but, but he had pain. And I looked back at that and I thought maybe I should have held him out, but he wasn't going to be held out. Mm-hmm. And we, we ended up fixing it and he's had a great NFL career and is, you know, a very well, well, highly compensated safety in the NFL. So it didn't hurt his future and I didn't think it would, but, but I was, I was surprised that he had an injury after the process he'd been through. Yeah. And so there are a few of those, you know, and, I think those are just like the complications in the general population where you you remember every one of them but fortunately we've been I've been pretty lucky that it hadn't happened more. Yeah. Since coming here that's one of the things that I've always found very fascinating and I've really appreciated is that in residency medical school residency you really learn stuff by the book. You know, you're learning you know, it takes six weeks for a fractured heel and you have to do this and you have to proceed. And this was the first time coming down here that a lot of that was kind of thrown to the wind and in a very safe way. There's no compromising of patient safety, but it was, you're right. Most of the studies identify a certain population and not everyone fits that population. And not everyone's personality also is reflective of those studies and someone who's very positive and who's very highly motivated uh, and who's going to do the work as much as they can within their capacity to get back. That's something that I've taken with me and tried to apply to my practices. You know, how can we accelerate people's ability to feel better uh, without necessarily going by the book, which is a safe way, but it's also not necessarily unsafe. Yeah, and you have to think about the individual situation. So, so for me, you know, the first time it really hit me in the head hard was was Julio Jones, 2010. We were defending national champion, undefeated, playing at South Carolina. They were kicking our butts. I mean, they were killing us. I think we were down by two or three touchdowns at halftime. Stephen Garcia um, had a really good game for South Carolina, and we just couldn't stop him. And Julio had a couple of touchdowns and. He came in and had a broken hand at halftime. And I I'd known, I knew it in the second quarter. I felt it, and I told him it was broken, but he wanted to keep playing. So at halftime, I said, do you want me to put a cast on it? You know, I can pull you out of the game. We can put a brace on it. We can pad it. He said, no, I'm, I'm straight. I'm good. I can play. He played the second half with it and had a, had a, another couple of touchdown catches. We ended up getting beat. And after after the game, I actually read his hand, and he had a broken fourth metacarpal. So his hand was broken on his dominant hand, his right hand. And so I thought in my head, okay, by the book, this is a six-week injury for a receiver, maybe even longer, to be able to catch a ball after a, a plated, surgically fixed metacarpal. And so I started thinking weeks. Okay, we're at South Carolina. We got Tennessee. Then we got a week off. Then we got LSU. I said, all right. You know, I told Julio, showed him the X-ray in, a, in the in the locker room after the game. I said, Julio, you know, you, you broke this bone. Here's what I need to do. I said, you're going to miss probably three weeks. I think if everything goes well, you'll be back by LSU. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got to do surgery to fix this, and you're not going to be able to catch a ball for a while because it's going to be too sore. He said, well, I don't understand. I could I played the whole game with it broken. Why can't I play after you fix it? And I said, well, you got a good point. I said, you know, ultimately it comes down to the strength of what I fix it with. If what I fix it is strong enough to hold it together, you may be okay. So, so just like Kenyon, I put a, a larger than normal plate with more than normal fixation on Julio's hand. 
and he played six days later and broke the all-time receiving record in Alabama in a single game against Tennessee. Had 221 yards receiving and yeah. three, two or three touchdowns. And Julio was just a special person. He wouldn't wear anything on it, and he never missed a beat. But that was the first time where I realized that the book answer is not always the right answer, that the norm is not always what you're dealing with. And some people, either by genetics or motivation or or just mindset, can can do things quicker than you think they can. Two is another one of those guys, isn't he? Yeah, no doubt. First time I met Two was a summer situation. He broke his hand the first week he was in Tuscaloosa. His throwing hand, left hand, index finger. And um, it was right at the beginning of spring practice. He had just come out of high school early and was throwing a ball and, and got it caught on a helmet and broke his hand. And I had never met never met him or his family. And you know, I showed him the x-ray and said, hey, we got to fix this. And his mentality was like, let's go. I'm ready. Can we do it right now? And so I fixed it, and he was real anxious about getting back fast. And you know, he came back and, and went really quickly. Actually, rebroke it, not the same place. Broke his hand at a different place in that same spring, and missed the rest of spring for a different injury. Um, so he had two surgeries within his first spring in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. You know, and then you know, it's well documented with his ankles and, and all the stuff with his hip. He, he's he's one of those guys that I think you know from from a psychological standpoint is so positive and has such mental resilience that, that he's – it doesn't matter if his leg falls off, he's still going to be positive that he can play again. Yeah. And, and I think that helps him. I still love the story of the first angle surgery about you and you and Dr. Waldrop. Can you tell us a little bit about making sure that that thing was snug? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it really happened. It was kind of a joke, but it really did happen where, you know, Tua was an important person in our, in our team, obviously, at that point. And I like to mess with Norman Waldrop anyway, but – we put that tightrope in, and Norman pulled it down. And the fellow that was in there at the time, we looked at it, and I was like, I think I can make it tighter. So I, I grabbed the tightrope strands, which tensions the button down, and I yanked it one good time. And I said, now it's for now that's Alabama. It's ready for LSU. And, um, and Norman was like, it didn't do, any, didn't do anything. The fellow and I both said, oh, yeah, we saw it move. It definitely tightened up. It's definitely <laughs> tighter than it was. And I think Waldrop was mad about it, but we were kind of tweaking him. Yeah, fun. that's great. Yeah. Well. Ended up working. So. Yeah, it worked. He, he came back and did well, and you know, obviously had a, had a great, great career. But yeah. I wish we had him for another year or two. Yeah, we all do. Clearly, he's been through a number of injuries, and the the big question leading up to the draft, and obviously we know the results now, and maybe they learned from their experience with Drew Brees. Who knows? But clearly, he was still highly regarded, and felt that you know his progress that had been made in the videos that had been shown, and his experience with the NFL Pro Days led people to believe that he was ready to go. However, there were a lot of teams out there that just felt that he was an injury risk. I have my own beliefs, but I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are in terms of when people say, hey, is Tua just vulnerable? Is he an injury risk You know, going forward? What are your thoughts on, on that? You know, I think it's interesting. I think I talked with Jeff Allen, and we kind of talked internally to his first spring you know, when he broke his hand twice. And I think the reality is I don't think Tua is injury prone at all. Like I don't think his body is frail or fragile, or I don't think he has a tendency to hurt things. I think the way he plays is really unusual and has played in that he will stand there in the pocket until the very last second. He rarely throws the ball away. Um, I think he, both the times he broke his hand, it was because he waited until the rush was on top of him before he cut the ball loose. When he got hurt against – when he had, had the, the hip dislocation against Mississippi State, you know, he was trying to extend the play. We were up big. He had had a great first half. He was trying to extend the play and not throw the ball away. You know, he throws the ball away three steps earlier and he probably didn't even get tackled, much less hurt. 
So I think that's just the way Tua has learned to play, and he's great at it, and he's unique, and that's what's made him special. The good thing for Tua, and, and the way I've explained it to a lot of the teams and a lot of the people involved in the NFL, is that the things he's had to date up to the hip, so the hand fractures, both ankles, the PCL in the knee that he had that was non-surgical, all of those things were things for the most part that are totally normal now. So, you know, his hand's not going to break again from the previous injury. His ankles aren't going to be disrupted again because he has tight ropes in both ankles. You know, the hip is the only one that really had the, the ability to change his future. And he's done really well from that, and it looks like he's going to have a really good outcome. Um, but I, I really do think that, that Tua has, you know, I think psychologically he knows that in the NFL is a different speed, different game. You know, I think he'll probably change just a minor way, probably not even perceptible to us, the way he, he processes in terms of getting rid of the ball sooner. And my perception in the NFL is everybody's bigger and stronger and faster, but they also protect quarterbacks really well in the NFL for the most part in terms of the rules. And so, you know, you can't hit them low. You can't roll into their ankles. You can't dive at their knees. Um, so there are a lot of protections in the NFL that I think he's going to be successful and not have an injury career, really. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you think that because I've had several conversations, whether it's with, you know, family members at home or people over the phone and, and their concerns. Well, is he injury prone? And my feeling is exactly what you said is no, it's probably related to extending the play, getting tackled from behind. If you think about the, the two ankle injuries and the hip injury and, you know, just being in the wrong position uh, when he's getting tackled. And I, I'm excited to see what he does. I mean, he's like, he's, I've, I've met him a couple of times and he's just, like you said with Kenyon, he's a very positive guy. Um, nothing seems to face him. You know, even in yeah. the most dire situations, he's he's got a smile on his face and he's ready to go. I don't <laughs> yeah. know how someone does yeah, that. It, in it, those wor- it worried me for a long time, really. I mean, his personality, because I, I felt like, you know, if things went south with any of his injuries, how he would handle it. But he doesn't seem, I mean, it doesn't seem to affect him. Even his hip, he was – there was only one time in the whole process where I saw him get a little bit frustrated. But in general, he was – he's been super positive from day one and never even, like said, well, what if or – you know, what could go wrong or what's the downside or what's the risk or that. I mean, he, he's always positive as if he just knows everything's going to go well. But, you know, I mean, Tua getting hurt playing quarterback to me is a lot like, you know, taking a NASCAR race driver and saying they're a bad driver because they crashed their car a lot. Part of playing football is getting hit. And unfortunately, because of the way he plays, he got hit a few times, maybe more awkwardly than some people do, and had some injuries. But at the end of the day, I think his ability is so good at understanding the field, at accuracy, at you know making the right throws to get receivers open. That I just I can't imagine him not being successful in the NFL. Yeah, well, it'll be it'll be great and interesting to see. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. We've touched on some actually pretty good highlights. Are there any other Alabama stories that just stand out to you? <laughs> uh, we could. Well, now you've got a million of them. We could go all day. Um, I've got thousands of them. You know, probably. One of the, the neatest things about my experience at the University of Alabama really is is that it, the Saban era has coincided with my boys growing up, you know, who are, who are football fans and nuts and play football and all that. And so, you know, both of my sons have had the opportunity over the last 13 years to be the, the sideline water boy, the Gatorade boy, where they're on the sideline in the locker room with me. You know, I don't know that even that it's officially known throughout the university, but, but generally my sons are with me most of the game, or one of them is. And they've had such a great experience to listen to Coach Saban, to see the players, to see what happens, to be on the field. Um, and the most memorable was the was the championship game against Georgia. You know, when Tua came in and threw that 
overtime touchdown pass. And what I remember most about it really was the fact that it was like the quickest turn of emotions that you could ever have because Georgia makes a long field goal, which we didn't think they would make. I really thought that Rodrigo and Blankenship would miss that 52-yard field goal. Um, Terrell Lewis, who was a kid that I'd just gotten through you know, treating, it was his second game back from a bad elbow injury where he'd missed essentially the whole season. Sacks him, I'm thinking, all right, that's going to be the play of the game. We're going to kick a field goal and win the game. Georgia makes a field goal. And then the first play after that, Tua takes a 16-yard sack. And it was like, at that point, I thought the game was over. You know, we'd already missed a field goal right at the end of regulation. And I said, there's no way we're going to make a long field goal to tie the game, and there's no way we're going to get a first down with second 26. And before that thought even processed my mind and got through my mind, we look up and Devontae Smith's in the end zone. And it was like you you don't even remember the play because you're still kind of sulking about the previous play, and the next play is already in the end zone. And then everybody kind of looked at each other like, is that it? Is it over? <laughs> is it really over? And then the place goes nuts. And all I remember is jumping up and down with my son and my neighbor, Lee Edwards, and we're just going nuts. And people are throwing stuff everywhere. And Coach Saban runs down the field. Nobody even you – know, we, we had a Gatorade cooler already made up for him. My boys had already had the red Gatorade to, to dunk Coach Saban. Everybody forgot about that. I mean, it was, it was the biggest pandemonium moment I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And, um, you know, experiencing that was really awesome, really cool. But having my son there was really made it even more special. Yeah. Speaking of your your son or sons, you're a big family guy. Tell me a little bit about your family. Yeah. So um, fortunate that you know both my parents you know lived a long time. My dad passed away about three years ago. You know, really good influence, hardworking guy, very very smart guy, could fix anything. You know, mom's been you know a great uh, nurturer her whole life for both me and my my sister and my dad. And you know, my family, I, I've was fortunate in Tuscaloosa and one of the reasons I think I was so fortunate to have chosen to go to Alabama rather than Duke was that I met my wife there Jill um, who's from Trustful and you know grew up here and, and actually had transferred to Alabama her sophomore year of college from UAB and, and I met her right when she first got there we started dating and you know we've been together 32 years now 33 years now so we started I guess going out we were 19 a long time ago wow and we've been married 28 years I think the interesting thing about ha- having met Jill and being in Tuscaloosa was that, you know, she also grew up as Alabama fan Her family's Alabama fans. And so my job in sports medicine and my somewhat requirement, I guess, for my job to be on sports sidelines, you know, my family has been able to be there for most of it. And I think it's been really great. So I have two daughters, Sarah and Virginia are 24 and 21 now. And my sons, Edward and George who are 19 and 16, you know, all grew up going to most of the games and, um, whether it's high school games or college games, you know, Virginia, my 21 year old, would sit on my shoulders in high school games when she was four or five years old, and you know, walk up and down the sidelines with me. Um, I almost got her killed one time on the sidelines by people running out of bounds that I, I wasn't standing there. So there've been some close calls, but you know, I think you know anything you do where you're really busy and spend a lot of hours working, I think it's really mandatory that your family is there with you because if if not, if my family hadn't been able to participate and be in the locker room with me in Tuscaloosa or be on the sidelines at high school games, you know, I'm, I'm gone for a lot of hours. And so it's really allowed me to stay connected with them. And I think they enjoy it and that they've, they're fans. And, you know, I think my grandkids eventually will be fans. I think we'll continue that process. You know, I've been really fortunate. Got a great wife, four great kids. Um, all either have or will go to the University of Alabama, I think. I've got two there now. Virginia just graduated. 
Um, I think Georgia will probably go to my last one, number four. Um, so I have four University of Alabama alumni and, and uh, fans and kind of brings the whole circle. It you know, absolutely right? does. Yeah. I know that uh, your daughters have already graduated, so they're they're not looking at medicine, but any chance any of your sons are? You know, I, I think um, personality-wise and, and kind of process-wise, I thought Sarah, my oldest, was probably the most likely because she was an engineering student and kind of had the, I think, had that, that mindset. But when I asked her about it when she was in college, she said, no way, I don't, I don't want to work as hard as you did, <laughs> um, which is probably smart. She's probably, yeah, probably smart. Than me. So she's, she, that means she's more, more intelligent than I am. There you go. George, number four, may end up in some field of medicine. You know, I don't know if it would be dentist or PT or medicine, but um, I think he likes it. He's, he's worked with Kevin Wilk a lot downstairs mm-hmm. and worked in the summers with those guys. I think he enjoys the, enjoys the camaraderie and the process and the thought process of medicine. So he may end up doing something in that field someday. Yeah, well, that's great. And outside of football, that you, and the time that you spend on the sidelines with your family, turkey hunting is another one <laughs> you need to spend. You, you are you've told me before that if if you could be a professional turkey hunter, that's what you would do instead of surgery. That's still is that still hold true? Yeah, I think I, you know I, I've joked about it, but it's it's somewhat true in that you work for different causes. I mean, I love taking care of people, doing surgery, and operating and fixing things, um, but ultimately I, I do a lot of it so that I can have time and land a turkey hunt. <laughs> yeah, that's my hobby. And my passion, you know, you know, Tom Kelly, who's this kind of famous turkey writer out of South Alabama, right, writes these turkey books. He's 93 or four years old now. I've had the chance to, to hunt with him a few times. Really interesting guy, really intelligent guy. He, he always said, I don't hurt, hunt turkeys because I want to. I hunt them because I have to. <laughs> and it is. It's an obsession. And once you get into it, it's a, it's a chess game out in the woods in nature with a pretty wily animal that, that's a lot of fun. So I love it. It's fun. Yeah. What is it about the actual experience that makes it obsessive or makes you, you know, draw that much passion to? Because there's plenty of other things you can hunt, you know, yeah. uh, or other activities that you can do, especially in the outdoors, you know, background of Alabama. What was it about turkey hunting specifically? I think the thing that I like about it mainly is that it is so interactive between you and the animal. And it's, you know, it's not fair game because we have a gun and they don't, but it's, it's really, you know, we're in their living room, their living area. Um, they know the place a lot better than I do. And I'm basically trying to outsmart the turkey and, and get into a spot where they don't expect me to be. Um, and there's a lot of interaction. It's a lot of movement. It's a lot of. It's really like a chess game. You know how how I move, how I call, what I do determines success. And even if I do everything perfectly, oftentimes the bird does something opposite of what I expect them to. And so it, it's a really intellectually tough sport in that you can you can hunt consecutively for days and days and days and see the turkey do 10 different things and be expecting him to do number 10 he does number 11 you know i do traditional turkey hunting still where i call the turkey in but when that doesn't work which is about 90 percent of the time i use a resort to, to stalking them with my decoy so the typical turkey calls are that's a typical that's a typical hen call. <laughs> I'm not very good with my mouth, but that, that was with my mouth. I've hunted with people that can use that can do their their voice in such a way they can make a perfect hen call, and that's always been my my goal in life. I just couldn't I never attained it, couldn't do it. So I think it's a it's a very challenging, and I just I enjoy it. It's the time of year I like. You know, I'm a spring kind of person. Weather's getting nice. You know, pretty days. You can turkey hunt in the morning go fishing in the afternoon so there's a lot of i'm an outdoors guy so it's yeah. just a good time of year and you've used your entrepreneurial spirit to try to increase your advantage is that correct with the yeah, game I changer i did 
Yeah, I've got a group of buddies that uh, friends that one guy Stephen Keith I grew up with, and the other two I met in college or medical school, who uh, we've hunted together for thirty years now um, during turkey season, and about seven or eight years ago, we, uh, after reading a Tom Kelly book talking about how the the Native Americans hunted turkeys. Um, Native Americans didn't call much the turkeys. They actually used turkey fans, the tail of a, of a turkey, to to entice a turkey to come close enough to shoot them with a bow and arrow. And they, they call it fanning, where you move the, the fan up and down to mimic a turkey's motion. And so it just kind of by chance happened one day while I was walking with a turkey decoy that I figured out that that worked in Alabama. And so I, I decided with my buddies to to patent a device to, to hunt turkeys called the Game Changer. We call it the game changer because it's really kind of the opposite of the way you normally hunt turkeys. Normal turkey hunters sit by a tree and are very quiet and call like a female turkey to try to get the male to come to them. This is more of an aggressive uh, use the male turkey and dominance and fighting instinct to get the turkey to come to you. And so it's it's a much more interactive way to do it. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it looks pretty successful because the YouTube videos you have, <laughs> when I first showed up in Alabama, having never turkey hunted and really never hunted before, because I spent most of my time, you know, after leaving Colorado, a lot of different metropolitan areas, yeah. I watched the video and it blew my mind <laughs> because here you are, it l- literally looks like you have a turkey on the end of your gun and you're luring these turkeys in and you've, you had it. I don't know if it was you, you probably have, I know for, for certain, one of the videos you have is, uh, uh, shooting two birds. Yeah. the same shot because they're yeah. so close that was a mistake by the way <laughs> yeah i didn't mean to do it I, there were five in front of me and they were, i'd been using my my decoy to fan and they came running at me and i was trying to video and it, anyway I, I thought there was only one bird in my line of sight where i shot when i shot ended up hitting two by accident but for for a turkey hunter that grew up i've been hunting turkeys the first time i remember going was when i was eight or nine with my dad my dad was a turkey hunter it's like the holy grail it's like finding finding something that um makes it so much more fun that it just it takes an already intense and fun sport and and quadruples it yeah i think that for me is uh backcountry hell skiing yeah yeah similar yeah Yeah. it's just it's a different level i think elk hunting and i think there are a lot of things that people do that are probably that similar adrenaline rush but for me you know a football game touchdown tuscaloosa afternoon is awesome um, but from an adrenaline standpoint, nothing matches when a turkey's about 30 yards out gobbling at you right on top of you. Yeah. It gets your heart rate up and you, you know, you, you feel like your heart's going to beat out of your chest. Yeah. That's great. I love it. I still, I still have to go. I still have to see what this is all about. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid to, because like you said, to, yeah. it's, it's an obsession. It. Yeah. Once yeah, you get into it, I'll end up without a wife. My wife doesn't like it. Um, <laughs> you know, my daughters don't like it. My sons have gotten into it and are pretty, they're not as obsessed as, as I am, but it's one of those things that if you have a couple of really, really true turkey hunt experiences, it's hard to stop. Yeah, that's great. Wanted to move and shift a little bit, a little bit more germane. Right now, obviously, we've all kind of been through this this pandemic related to COVID-19. What do you think this does for athletes leading up to their seasons? Do you think there's going to be an increased injury risk? Do we think we're missing out on anything going forward? How do you think this has really affected not only sports today and this season, but in the future? Yeah, I think it's it's obviously unprecedented times that we don't have any experience with, and so I think it's I think it's scary for everybody. I mean, I think whether you're a coach, an athlete, a medical staff, athletic trainer, um, everybody's a little nervous for a lot of reasons. I think number one, you know, the first fear is the the coronavirus itself and and how that can affect the team and the support staff and the coaches and you know the athletes themselves in most cases, according to most of what we know, are probably not at high risk for having problems. 
even if they're they're COVID positive. Um, but the support staff, the medical staff, the officials, the administration, I mean, everybody that's around the program, you know, most of those people are in the high risk class or a lot of more. Um, so I think everybody's concerned about, you know, infection getting going through the team and through the program and, and having sick people. And, you know, God forbid somebody dies from, from COVID within the Alabama football staff. Um, so that's number one. I think number two is how you keep people safe, but also allow them to train to get ready for a sport. And, you know, I think the University of Alabama and Coach Saban and, and Jeff Allen, those guys, strength and conditioning coaches, have done a really good job at keeping up. You know, we, we had a discussion early on when the, when the pandemic first started about how do we try to keep tabs on these guys to make sure that they're doing what they need to do to not hurt themselves. Um, and one of the things they did was to get Apple Watches for the players before they went home. They're allowed to do certain things like Zoom meetings and keep up with the players, but you really can't monitor heart rate and exertion and those things very well unless you have some kind of electronic device mm-hmm. like an Apple Watch. And so, you know, we were able through the pandemic to, to see our players' average heart rate, max heart rate, number of hours exerted. I mean, we know pretty well who's in shape and who isn't based on that data. And hopefully that keeps them from having a high injury risk. Mm-hmm. But nobody really knows because we haven't done this before. Um, it kind of reminds me of going back to when I was playing sports in high school, where about half of our football team in high school did nothing all summer and then showed up August 1st for camp and just died the first week of training camp. And the other half worked out and stayed in shape and ran outside and were acclimated and they were used to the heat and everything was fine and they did okay. I think that's the real concern nationally is that when you put all these kids out in the heat, if they haven't been keeping up and haven't been exercising, there can be some disasters from heat stroke and cardiac events and other things that can happen. And then then the lesser injuries that are still important, like soft tissue injuries, hamstring strains, you know, ankle injuries, ACLs, things that happen sometimes because of lack of condition that we're worried about. So, um, you know, we as a medical staff have talked about how to try to prevent that, both by understanding their background athletic position in terms of how trained they are and how accolade they are, and also when they first get to Tuscaloosa, trying to assess their function. And I think the the new strength and conditioning uh, coaches and program with Jeff Allen have a really good handle on this, and I think they the technology allows you to do that. You can look at a lot of the mechanics and a lot of the GPS data and a lot of the the process that players go through to see how conditioned they are. Yeah. So, so I think those are those are the concerns. Um, I don't think any of us will know the right answer until we probably get halfway into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think working with Sanford, that was kind of one of the big topics is trying to figure out what do you do and how do you assess, you know, whether or not athletes are actually doing what has been recommended. And there are obviously restrictions from the NCAA that says you can't have mandated workouts. But I think, like you said, having the ability to understand who has at least been trying to work out and stay fit helps you have a baseline understanding of when they come back, who can you push, who do you have to be careful with, who do you have to you know, make sure that you're, you're cautious of, whether it's with heat or heat stroke or, or even just you know, sprinting, you know, ramping up your velocity. Yeah, I think at the high school level, you know, my, my youngest son George is in high school football now, and the first day back, you know, June 1st, they did a fitness test. And, you know, they had to run 16 60s under eight seconds as a, as a skill position guy. And they had to do a certain amount of squats and power cleans and other stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's good. I mean, you need, you need to know the fitness level of all your players before you start training. But it's also dangerous in that, you know, some big overweight guy that's not acclimated to heat 
running 1660s, you know, that could be a recipe for disaster. And so you've got to have some measurement tool to tell you who's, who's ready and who's not for training. And then as you get close to the season, you've got to be able to assess, you know, based on some previous knowledge for us, it's going to be GPS data. You've got to assess, are they at their, their normal place in terms of, of fitness? You know, do they have the normal acceleration, normal velocity, normal cutting speed, normal endurance, normal workload, all those things that I think will help determine whether they're ready to, to play safely. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great point, with especially with the GPS, because now you actually have a baseline established well before this. Yeah, for all the players that have been there a year, we know what their what their normal is. Yeah, and I think you've given some talks, and you know I've kind of talked, and we work at work on a couple projects with that GPS data. Do you think at some point that is going to be cost effective enough to move beyond the division one schools like Alabama and the professional schools to where it can be used at places like high school to really identify younger kids who may be at more risk because they don't have all the resources of a Jeff Allen and a, an extensive medical training staff. But, you know, maybe that, you know, using the GPS data that can be you know acquired by school used more than once and, and for multiple athletes, you think that's ever going to be a little bit more widely oh, available? Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. I mean, I, I think if you look at just other technologies, you know, like, like this, the Apple watch, for instance, or, you know, even something as, you know, basic as GPS monitoring of running, like a Fitbit, you know, the technology is there. It's pretty new in, in the GPS world. And so, you know, it's pretty expensive and it t- costs a lot to monitor it, maintain it and evaluate the data and all that. I'm, I'm sure as this thing moves forward, there will be processes where you can wear something on your wrist or on your chest or whatever, and it tells you all the data we're having to compile now. And so I think, you know, as the technology gets more streamlined the price point will come down and it'll probably be something where every team has it yeah oh, i think i'm hoping that's the case because i think that we've seen not only in just looking at athlete performance you know data is going to be something that evolves and becomes really important in, in far as what crafts a lot of the decisions now it's never going to take the place of you know intuition in terms of a coach or a physician making that decision based on what their experience is but it's going to i think help at least inform those decisions a lot better yeah you know just an example of this so so the new strength conditioning program at Alabama um, with Jeff Allen and the New Sports Science Center. Um, one of my athletes today, that Alabama athlete I was talking to, is, is an ACL patient. Injured his ACL a couple of years ago, played over the last couple of years, but just didn't feel like he was effective as, as he normally was. And he said that he met the strength and conditioning coach right before the pandemic started, and they actually did some gait training and watching him run um, with electrodes and with some GPS to see how his foot strike was and his quad function and all these things. And essentially, you know, according to this player, they figured him out in about 30 minutes. And then he trained through that over the last six weeks. And he told me today that he feels better than he has in three years. Really? So, so I think just looking at, you know, some of the deficiencies he had in his gait, he was not firing his quad and hitting his ground with his ACL knee the same as he did with his other knee. And so he was probably overloading the bone and making the bone sore, not having very good shock absorption. And just by altering that six weeks ago, you know, I think they may have corrected his problem hmm. and, you know, maybe prevent further injuries, more meniscus tears, more cartilage injury. And he was adamant. He said, look, I, he's, he's a senior. He said, I feel the best I felt in three years really? after just six weeks of doing this. He said, they, they figured it out. They had analytics. They knew what I was doing wrong. They knew the, the science behind it, and they told me what to do to fix it, and it worked. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, that, that well, I'm really excited. Cool. I think yeah, it's gonna be good. That's got to be really exciting. A couple more general things. What's the most interesting thing a patient has given you? A lot of times, patients bring in gifts. <laughs> that's great. 
I had a good one today, actually. I mean, I've had a lot of a lot of interesting things. I mean, I, I think, you know, the ones that are probably the most memorable were the ones that are like handmade things. Mm-hmm. So I, I operated on a, on a kid from South Georgia right before turkey season started, and he was a high school, you know, like a ninth grade freshman athlete, and he came in real nervous, you know, had a, had a knee injury, and I ended up operating on him, and he did fine, and, and he actually wanted my turkey decoy, and he's a big turkey hunter, and had a really good outcome, and, and had a great turkey season using my game changer decoy. And so he and his mom made me these plaques for my wall. One one is a frame uh, that has the Game Changer logo and a bunch of stuff on it that was handmade that has a picture of me showing him turkey pictures at the first office visit. And the other one was one he made that was like a, a Christmas ornament, basically, um, that had the Game Changer logo. So it awesome. obviously put a lot of time and effort. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it meant a lot to me. And then, you know, simple things. Today I saw a farmer from Dothan. Uh, I've done three or four surgeries on over the years that brought me three gallons of boiled peanuts. Really? <laughs> so, so in my in my truck right now, I've got I've got a cooler with three gallons of boiled peanuts, and you know that's that's like gold to him. So yeah, it really meant a lot for him to yeah from Dothan, you know, three hours away to boil peanuts, put them in a container and a cooler, and bring them to me. Yeah, you know that that uh, that tells you how much they they appreciate what you do for them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's one of the underappreciated sort of experiences that, you know, training, you don't really think about that, but I've seen it, you know, being in your clinic and then also, you know, early in my career, there've been a few patients who drop stuff off and it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you certainly don't ask for it or mm-hmm. anticipate it or expect it, or, you know, there's no precedent where people think, okay, I need to bring something to, to the doctor, but you know, it, I think it does in a lot of ways just show their appreciation and, and makes you feel good about what you did. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a fellow, it was the only time I've seen during football season that you actually left for something that was non-football. You got to the Ryder Cup. What was that experience like? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, so I, it was a really cool experience. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, a golfer, but not you know, I'm not a great golfer, but I like golf. And, and I think Ryder Cup is one of those experiences that is kind of a bucket list thing that you need to do. Um, it's unique in that, that it's a raucous, loud you know, football environment in a on a golf course, and I had the opportunity when I was a kid to go to a lot of good golf tournaments. My my dad, because of the Thompson Tractor Caterpillar experience, we had the PGA Championship here in 1984, 1990 at Shoal Creek, and you know both of those tournaments I went to and got to meet a lot of the players and have hats signed by the players, Jack Nicklaus and you know Tom Watson, all those kind of guys, and was actually on the course uh, in the woods with my dad and Hall Thompson and Jack Nicklaus when they first started kind of planting Shoal Creek years ago. Really? I, was, I was a little kid, but, um, so I had some really cool experiences, but in my mind, going to most golf tournaments is not a lot of fun. You know, you can go to Augusta national. It's a beautiful place to the masters. And I love walking the course, but I don't like watching a golf tournament. I, it's much better to watch on TV because you can keep up with more players. If you're walking a tournament, you can only see two players typically, and you don't really know what's going on the rest of the tournament. The Ryder Cup's different, and you know it started because I had the opportunity to, to operate on Davis Love, Davis Love the third. He, he had an accident snowboarding and broke his collarbone, broke his clavicle, and somehow ended up seeing me, and I ended up fixing it. And um, I think Dr. Andrews probably sent him to me, but great guy, very nice, super down to earth, generous kind of guy. And the, he was about to be the captain of the Ryder Cup team, and so he offered for me and you know some of my partners to come to Minnesota for the Ryder Cup, and we, we decided, even though it was football season, we had to take him up on it. So we didn't miss any games. We, we went on a Tuesday, went to the Wednesday and Thursday and Friday rounds at Ryder Cup, and then came back Friday night for high school games. But that was an amazing experience. That At Medina, the uh, the roars from the crowd match any college football roar 
that you hear outside the stadium. Really? And oftentimes it wasn't because a U.S. player made a good putt. It was because a European missed a putt. <laughs> and so just the patriotism and the, you know, the USA, 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 or the Europeans do the, oh, 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 yeah. you know, all these chants. And, you know, the Europeans, a lot of them were in big groups and dressed up in these crazy outfits. And uh, it was a really cool experience. And hanging out with Davis Love and a lot of the team was really interesting, too. You know, that, that's probably a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't expect I'll ever get behind the ropes at, at the uh, Ryder Cup again, but that was a can't-miss opportunity. Definitely memorable. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot, of, a lot of ground. I've learned a lot of things that, you know, even having spent as much time with you as I have, uh, that I wasn't aware of, so it's been really interesting to hear that. It's been fun. Any last thoughts or pieces of advice for either, you know, young surgeons or people going through medical school or athletes or coaches or really anybody that – any thoughts on your mind that you might, might offer some advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess – my main thought is um, technology is great. We have great opportunities to fix things and great ways to, to get rid of injuries now and get people back. But I still think for whether you're a coach or a player or a physician you know, or somebody getting into medicine, you know, I think the mental side of it is still really, really big part of it. And so being positive, being the glass half full, being resilient, you know, realizing that no matter how bad the situation is, there's still potential for a good outcome um, is really important, either relaying it to patients or if you're a coach, relaying it to players, or if you're a player and you're the injured one, you know, you got to realize that even though it may be a, a pretty dire circumstance, at the end of the day, I can't think of, I mean, I can think of a lot of bad injuries I've seen in the last 20 years. And all of those people, because of the process they went through, ended up at the other end probably being better off than, than if they hadn't been injured. Hmm. You know, for a lot of reasons. They, they learned something. They changed their focus. They, you know, got a new profession, learned about physical therapy, wh- whatever it may be. Um, I think most people 20 years, 30 years down the road from injury end up being in a good spot and can probably find some positives from that injury and that experience. And so as an athlete or a, a coach, you have to kind of frame that when you get hurt. And as a physician, you have to accentuate the positives and, and realize that people are a lot more resilient than you think they are. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great piece of advice. I'm going to try to apply it to my, my practice. Yeah, I mean, I, I can think of a bunch of examples right off the top of my head now where guys had career-ending injuries. I mean, I can think of two Alabama players, you know, that one before I got there and one right when I got there that were, you know, it changed their life. And if you ask them about it now, they're still super positive about it. Yeah. You know, they say there were good things that happened from it. A lot of things, whether it's psychologically, family-wise, work-wise, whatever it is, it ended up being a, a positive. It was all over. Yeah, that's well, awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, uh, thanks thank for you having for me. me. Yeah, absolutely. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast. It is my pleasure today to welcome an expert of the airwaves, a commensurate commentator, and one of the most iconic voices in college football. Having broadcast for over 30 years, the experience spanning the biggest college football games and stages, over 50 Grand Slam professional tennis finals, the FIFA World Cup, Breeders' Cup, X Games, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, with great pleasure and honor, Chris Fowler. Ever since I'm 10 years old, I wanted to do this. And my grandmother was the reason. So we would watch NFL games there on Sunday and and her passion for the Cubs is what got me into listening to games. I thought, 
what could be a better job than describing the excitement from Wrigley Field to fans like me who are just as excited to hear it. And a month later, they called and said, how would you like to do college football sidelines and report on this pregame show that nobody watches called Game Day? And Notre Dame was at the site of our very first Game Day roadshow, as I'm sure you know, back, back in 93. And we're very proud of that. Game Day ended up being something that was a real part of the fabric of the culture of college football. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.